We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think.
are we, we believe are important uh, to discuss things that have come up in the past week or weeks, and um, we're just going to go ahead with, uh, with some of those topics right now, all in under five minutes. Still down by Neil and Pierre, while I sit here and listen. <laughs> uh, actually, there's there's one story I just that just grabbed my attention uh, recently. Well, um, it was just from today or yesterday. It was in some online uh, mainstream newspaper. Um, it's basically about a story about a guy, a reporter for for a for a newspaper who who flew from. Um, Switzerland, an airport, I think Zurich Airport in Switzerland, and he passed through um, security, and on the other side of security, he was browsing around the shops, and he saw a Swiss Army knife shop, uh, and he went in there and he bought several Swiss Army knives with, you know, six inch long, or sorry, I think six centimeter long blades. Uh, Why not? When in Rome? You, well, well, he he made a, he made a story of it, or the, this newspaper made a story of it by saying that it was basically kind of strange, given all of the airport security since ah, 9/11 and stuff, and the claim that uh, the claim that the 19 hijackers, or some of them anyway, this is generally believed that they they used box cutters or knives of some description, or box cutters or whatever to 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 hijack these planes. This was their at least in some of the planes, this it was their primary weapon. Um. And then after 9-11 and after that whole story, you had this ridiculous clampdown on, on you know, what people could and couldn't take onto airplanes and the whole, you know, draconian legislation mm-hmm. passed by the TSA in America and stuff in terms of airport security to the point where, you know, breast milk couldn't be taken by mothers onto, on, onto airplanes and still can't be taken onto airplanes. And, you know, kids having their toy guns removed uh, from their possession, taken off them before they get on the plane, you know, a, a, a toy plastic gun because it's threatening. I think it was a story a couple of weeks ago of someone, some kid in the UK traveling with his parents had his plastic gun, toy gun taken off him because it was threatening. But yet, and I suppose in that context, this story kind of stands out where you can go into an airport in Zurich and he flew from Zurich to the UK mm-hmm. with this, with, well, he bought several of them for some reason and he was a picture of himself on, on the plane brandishing them and, uh, and so it's interesting, you know, just to, uh, to as, a, as a highlight of just how ridiculous this, the situation has become. And, and, and uh, I can confirm because uh, I, I experienced two anecdotes along this line. I took a plane uh, in France from uh, from Toulouse to Lyon, and I had a pair of scissors, small scissors, you know, and the blade were, if I correctly remember, six centimeters long, a bit more than two inches. And the law says if the blade is more than two inches, it's too dangerous. So they took my my scissors. Did they measure it beforehand? Yeah, they measured it in front of me. It was uh, like one centimeter too long. And uh, so I went back to Toulouse Airport the day after to pick up my scissors. And they say they had been destroyed because they destroyed what they seized. But the funny part is a second anecdote. So again, I take the plane for a flight. I don't remember the destination, whatever. And uh, I put my backpack in the X-ray machine, and they find my Leatherman wave. You need this this kind of Swiss knife. Mm. They found it. I had lost it for for years. Actually, it was be, between the mat on the back and the and the back per se. You had sleep in there, and I said, "Oh, my Leatherman! Great, you found it. Thank <laughs> you." 
And, uh, and they destroyed but, it. Hang on. The lady starts to look at it. And I remember the scissor story. I say, oh, don't worry, just a pair of pliers. And then I start to open it because the first thing you see with this laser man is pliers. And I say, you see it's pliers. And with these pliers, you have this dents here. And here you can cut with pliers. Isn't it nice pliers? <laughs> and I was voluntarily, I was overwhelming her. I say, okay, okay, go away. Yeah. And I left with my uh, laser man, which includes probably four or five blades, four blades that are about uh, seven centimeters long. Mm-hmm. So I show you how inefficient and, I mean, we know, we all know that the objective is not to, to provide safety for the for human beings. No. Uh, That's ridiculous. Like, uh, like the other yeah. laws. But even knowing that, I can go into an airport aware of what's coming up. Okay, give myself time, make sure I take off my belt or whatever is necessary to get through. It still gets to you, you know. You, you can't help but wonder, is the idea, is the goal to stress you out? Cause Cause you really it's part and, uh, and also, you know, this gradual... Uh, they try to uh, to prime you gradually to get to make you uh, accept step by step things that are not acceptable. You know, it's like the boiling frog, and step by step you give away a bit more of your freedom, a bit more of uh, your dignity, and in the end you turn back and you realize you're you're naked. You have no more dignity. You have no more rights. You have no more freedom, mm. and you gave everything away. And it, it's even the idea that they destroy them, you know, uh, is ridiculous as well. One of our, com- our chat room members asked, how do you destroy a pair of scissors? But they do destroy them, you know. Um, it's ridiculous. You know, it's like, it's like that, that act of destroying them as well is to show that these are very dangerous items and they need to be put beyond human use type of thing, even though they're just household items very often, you know. So it's ridiculous. I mean, if there was any sanity in it, they would take those items and okay, so they it's it's bad enough that they don't give them back to you. You can't go like you did, Pierre, and go and ask for them back the next day or whatever. Um, but at the very least, they could give them to charity or sell them or have them melted down and give them money to charity or something. A little bit of sanity anywhere, but no, they have to be destroyed. There's a story actually my mother told me where she she went um, uh, to an airport and the woman had taken a pair of, I think it was a pair of scissors uh, of her that she had in her bag that she was taking down to... To, to a house um, in another country and she wanted to take them down she took them specifically because they were a pair of scissors that she liked and the woman spotted them in the airport and took them off her and uh, after the man took them off her and my mother couldn't couldn't hold her tongue basically and said to him <laughs> good for her said to him you know I bet your wife's going to get some good use out of those tonight uh, implying that he was going to be taking them uh, no, take that he was going to take them and give them. You know that these guys, these people were profiting from the the the, 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 the spoils of the spoils of war. Yeah, exactly. The, the spoils of war. <laughs> this is booty. You know they, they were going to take. Uh, they were going to. It was a benefit in kind. They probably, you know, it's probably in their contract yeah. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he paid in scissors and knives. He he, he motioned her to come over and took her over just over somewhere close by, and there was a crush a metal crushing machine that they had on site there, and. He showed her, and he dropped them in, and showed her that that they that they crushed, that they destroyed them in some way or other. Mm. So you know, when I went to to get my scissors back, they told me we keep the items, the scissors items, only for twenty four hours. But it's ridiculous because it's a, an airport; people are traveling, and usually you're not back to the initial point within twenty four hours. Yeah. So you can't yeah. claim them within twenty four hours. Ridiculous. No. Yeah. But the the thing that uh, it brought to mind for me as well was um, 
the whole story of 9-11 and the claim that box cutters were used. Because a lot of people, I think, today, somehow, it's, it's kind of like uh, the whole weapons of mass destruction and Saddam having some involvement that a lot of people believe that Saddam had a lot of, had some kind of involvement in, in 9-11, that he was responsible and that there were weapons of mass destruction found in Iraq. These, these ideas that somehow managed to get out we know how, but they managed to get out. These totally false ideas get out into the public consciousness and, and people run with them and it becomes established history that, you know, there's still something like 50% or something of, of Americans who, who when asked, said that yes, Saddam had some involvement in 9-11, you know, and nobody ever said that, but somehow it got out there. Mm. I mean, it was just a link between, you know, we're 9-11, we invade Iraq, that must be the reason, you know. Yeah. But uh, this idea about box cutters, it seems to be fairly uh, widespread that they use box cutters to overtake these planes, which is ridiculous enough in itself. But the fact is that there was only one reference made to there being box cutters on any of the four flights on 9-11, and that was on Flight 77 that allegedly hit the Pentagon, although it obviously didn't. But anyway, and that report came from Ted Olson, who was the former Attorney General of the United States and the guy who put Bush in power in 2000. You know, uh, he was on this, at the time he was on the Supreme Court. He was a Supreme Court judge in, in Florida. Florida. Oh. And, he, and he made the decision. I think he was one of the few. Or he, he arbitrated basically and said, well, yeah, we'll give it to Bush. It was a 4-3 vote, wasn't it? Yeah. Was he number four? I think so. He had a deciding, a, a deciding vote. vote anyway. Mm. And he was then made Attorney General by Bush. And his wife then was on flight, uh, allegedly again, on flight uh, 77. Barbara Olson. Yeah, Barbara Olson. And she, she was a Fox News conservative yeah. pundit, and she allegedly, according to Ted Olson, called him. And this is how yeah. she was the one who said that they, they have box cutters. And he went back and forth a few different times in different interviews afterwards saying that she either called him from a, a satellite or seatback phone in the plane, and then a few a week later, he said, told another uh, a reporter in another interview, he said that she called from her cell phone, and then he went back and forth a few different times, and then he just shut up about it. But someone asked uh, American Airlines, and they said, you know, no, we don't have any seatback phones in those planes. So he was lying when he said that, and it turns out he was also lying because, in as part of the uh, the 9-11 Commission report, the FBI tracked the any set, any cell phone communications coming from that plane, and there was only one, but it had a total of zero seconds. It basically didn't connect, and it was a call from someone to the Justice Department, but it did not connect, which is, which is obvious because... Um, because actually, cell phones don't connect when flying at 500 miles an hour. It can connect very quickly to one emitter, but then to one antenna. But then, anyway, since the the plane goes really fast, it will disconnect from the first antenna and try to connect to a second yeah. antenna and a third so one along the path. So it keeps getting disconnected right. from one antenna to another. So it wasn't possible. And the FBI said that no 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 cell phone connections were made, although there was one attempt to the Justice Department. Uh, so he but. Ted Olson had this big story about how he talked to his wife and she told him all this information. So he blatantly made that up. He, he lied about that and, and spread this idea of the box cutter. He did not uh, talk to anyone. No one called him from Flight 77. Uh, but that is the source of this box cutter story. Mm. It's 
false. It's a fabrication. It yeah. never happened. He, he his statement is false, and it's the source of the box cutter story, and um, and it has and it's, that's the kind of linkage to the story today because obviously box cutters, knives on planes. You know, anything can be used. There was one report somewhere that they actually used razor blades attached to uh, scotch taped to credit cards uh, <laughs> in the aftermath. I believe it or not, that's what they actually said, that they had used uh, razor blades attached to credit cards. Um, but this was, you know, I suppose this was in a way designed to suggest just how dangerous tri- fl- flying and traveling on airplanes is and therefore we have to you can't have toy guns, you can't have any kind of knives, any weapons, nothing sharp at all. You know, your fingernails cut, because if your fingernails are too long, you know, you might be able to overtake them, you know. Liquid, plane. Liquids are forbidden too, yeah. more than 100 milliliters. Yeah, because you can make a bomb. Well, that came that afterwards. A water bomb, or that, a that soda bomb. Later. That came on the basis of the shoe bombing. Yeah. What was his name again? Richard uh, Reed. Richard Reed, yes, a British guy. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole weird story in itself. But now you can only carry, you know, X number of mils. 100 mils, yeah. 100 mils of shampoo. That's because you can theoretically take, you know, household ingredients. Put uh, them together and make a bomb. In the toilet, make a bomb and blow up a plane. (laughs) That's how ridiculous it is and no one cares. No one seems to care that it's absolutely ridiculous and goes against all notions of, you know, sanity or rationality and even even, uh, reality. You know what I mean? That, that that it would be possible for anybody to to make a bomb that would <laughs> be big yeah. enough, or you know, I mean, people yeah. have even done reports on it where they said, okay, give me some, give, throw me out, throw me out some ideas of what you're claiming these would be terrorists could do on an airplane with household ingredients, and somebody you know said, well, they could take this ingredient from their kitchen and this ingredient, this ingredient, and um, and the conclusion was that well, if somebody tried to do that in an airplane and toilet, the worst damage they would do would probably like you know, burn themselves if they try to ignite it. They might blow up in their face a little bit, but certainly it wouldn't be, you know, anything that would threaten the plane. So yep. none of it is based on any kind of reality, yet it's pushed through. Why? Is it just pure hysteria or is there a, an agenda behind it? Like you guys were just talking about, you know, it's it's about slowly, you know, corralling people, you know, psychologically uh, into this kind of state of fear and, you know, what they can and can't do is always dictated by authorities and they have to, you know, always watch themselves. Sometimes it's multifactorial, you know. Sometimes uh, a decision, a rule, serves several purposes. There is this humiliation factor, this stripping away freedom purpose. It's also, uh, interestingly, the planes, airports, is, uh, it's about travel, communication, meeting people. So it can be also perceived as a way to reduce socialization, social interaction, because we know that the elites fear a few things. One of the things they fear is that uh, it's united people, people who communicate, people who exchange their view, people who help each other. I guess they would be very happy with a a very individualistic society where every citizen is in a box and he cannot learn anything, he cannot exchange any information, he cannot help, he cannot be helped. And so he's a total slave of the PTBs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's fear. Um, that seed of suspicion can grow into. I mean, it's going to be more pronounced at an airport. Don't don't look anyone in the eye. You know, don't talk to a stranger. Mm-hmm. But and then you you'll leave there and you'll be back among friends and company. But that that suspicion. It's not really that it's intended. 
that they can foresee the consequences of it, but in some way it's for whatever way this is this is the result it has on normal people it 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 takes it seeds and it grows and mm-hmm. it manifests in other ways i mean look look how that one little thing one little piece of disinformation about a box cutter has become a standard it's almost like the the hallmark of 911 mm-hmm. 19 arab terrors box cutters mm-hmm. that's, it's become that's the emblem yeah. of the entire event mm-hmm. and that's all they have really depended on because there's no other hard evidence uh, or the other evidence for there being hijackers or them having guns or bombs is equally spurious. Uh, It's actually, if you look at the whole 9-11 Commission report and the official story of 9-11, it is, it's just, there's no basis to the the official story. There's none whatsoever. Apart from the fact that planes did crash into the World Trade Center uh, towers, uh, that's I mean, that's what it hangs on. Nobody can argue with that because there's so much video footage of it actually having happened. Uh, so then when you when you present a narrative afterwards, well, people just go with it, you know? I mean, if it can't, it can't be proven, but it can't be disproven. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what, that's what they rely on. You yeah. know, if I say, well, where's your evidence that there were 19 hijackers in those planes? They turn around and basically say, well, where's your evidence that there wasn't? The bottom line is 9-11 happened and we have to react. Yeah. Stop thinking. Get yeah. emotional. And, uh, and you make people emotional with such uh, shocking images. You know, the, Just having the planes hitting the towers and the towers collapsing is enough to hysterize the population to a degree where any objective reasoning is cancelled. So basically, basically you can feed the masses with whatever scenario you want, even the most... Uh, and consistent ones. It was a giant slap in the face to all of America, you know, an unprovoked, sudden, unexpected slap, like you know, as if, as if someone just out of out of nowhere, someone uh, aggressed uh, the entire American population at once, and that kind of you know, emotional, the kind of emotional reaction you would get from someone if they were suddenly slapped mm-hmm. unexpectedly. Yeah, you got that three hundred million fold. Well. Let's leave out the kids. Two hundred million, let's say, two hundred million fold. You got that, you know, uh, that emotional reaction, and that was political capital, and when that was used to launch wars. And it's um, and uh, along the remember we're talking about this resonance between individuals. For fear factor, you, we might have to take into account the limbic resonance. You have three hundred million people who react in a similar way: fear, anger, and this kind of uh, emotional. Uh, Register, and at the same time, you might have a, a resonance factor. Every citizen resonating with uh, 29999 uh, others, mm-hmm. the synergic effect, you know, mm-hmm. it must be over, overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, it was extraordinarily successful in that sense. <laughs> I mean, it's a relatively minor in, in terms of what actually took place, uh, and in terms of the numbers actually killed compared with other actual warfare or uh, numbers of yeah. accidents per year and so on and so forth. If you were to compare statistically, it was a relatively minor affair. No, it was, it was, it was even spe- for yeah. the US. But it was spectacular. The yeah. symbolic the Power. symbolic dimension, the emotional dimension yeah. was very, very strong. A chat room, uh, chat room chatter. What are chat room people called? Chatters? <clears throat> anyway, Chatters. A chat room member, Michael James, made a good point there. He said that isn't that what they do in the MK Ultra program? They shock the candidate to a level of terror and then implant programming. And it's not and, unreasonable yeah. to suggest and, that it was. And 
Uh, and we know for sure that that was done intentionally. That was the aim of uh, doing that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's trauma. It's trauma. Shock, shock in order to create yeah. something new. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, absolutely right, Michael. Um, that it, and it's not unreasonable or not implausible that mm. that that theory of of what 9/11 would produce in the American population was in some way linked back to research that was done on individuals under MK Ultra. Yeah. You know the understanding of of human psychology. You, you explore it and you experiment in all these horrible ways as we've documented in previous shows and then you use that uh, understanding and expand that out to the entire population and say we can do this all at once rather than just on, on one person let's do it on millions that answers the question I had what happened after they closed down those programs well it went above above street rather than underground. it went nationwide it went well, wide. <clears throat> yeah I was wondering uh the author we interviewed, Colin Ross um, and his colleague, they were not very clear about that, although they acknowledged that, yeah, there were huge developments after the 50s, 60s and 70s programs, but they didn't have very uh, consistent data about it to back up their hypothesis. Um, I'm wondering if uh, by now... Uh, they they might be able to uh, to use just uh, wave vectors, you know, through the air. No, you don't need LSD anymore. You don't need to poison someone. You don't need electroshock. You don't need to confine an individual for endless weeks with repeating messages one million times, subjecting to uh, neurosurgery and all this uh, barbaric and heavy mm-hmm. and uh, expensive and uh, kind of rudimentary. Uh, Techniques. I think uh, I would not be surprised if today they are able to uh, to beam, how to call that, yeah, to beam uh, individuals collectively, individually, locally, and even uh, beaming with several several tons. You know, induce fear, induce uh, paralysis, induce heart attack, induce uh, uh, obedience, blindness. Everything they want. Yeah, I have no doubt that they definitely try experiment with that in terms of the the, the further application or the more, more advanced application of these techniques. They want to control people. They start off by doing it in the way that you described with these, you know, hands-on techniques, and then, but surely they they would have been interested in the effect on on the brain, what was going on in the brain at this time. You know, the whole psychological aspect of it and the electrical kind of uh, signals within the brain and stuff. And I mean, they've had lie detector tests lie detector machines for, for a long time that, that measure those kind of uh, responses. And in modern medicine, it's been around for a long time, uh, you know, ECGs and stuff like that. Um, I don't know, ECGs are for the heart. Uh, EEGs. EEGs. Um, and MRIs. Yeah. So I don't doubt that if they were involved in this, which they were obviously under MKUltra, that they, that they explored that area. And we even hypothesize that that's what HARP is really for. Uh, you know, uh, HARP is essentially a modulation of brain waves uh, on a global scale, or on a global scale, but on a on a broad scale. Well, it's presented as a a weather alteration weapon. Well, it's interesting because just just before that, it's it's not officially for no, that. No, no, but it's gone. It's presented in so the alternative. You have several walls mm-hmm. to jump over to reach the what we think is the truth. Yeah. You have the first. You have the official theory wall. Uh, okay, harp is about uh, tra- transmission, uh, communication, observation. 
Yeah, I, I'm not even sure. I think it, it's, it, it was built on an experimental basis, officially. Okay. Not an active program. Okay, and then, uh, and then you have a, the second wall, which is, a, how can we call it? The, yeah, what is a conspiracy, conspiracy yeah. spread by uh, the mainstream alternative medias, you know, the alternative medias that are not really alternative. And uh, those, this second wall catch a lot of people, you know, people who manage to see through the the, the official theory lies. Uh, like from 9-11, a lot, like 50 or 60% per percent of the people don't believe in the official theory. So they start to search and they stumble upon those uh, conspiracy theory websites, free energy weapons and uh, no plane theory and thermite and nanothermite and etc etc so actually they avoided the first mainstream lie the first trap and they felt in the second one and same f for harp because today actually we don't even know the, the official theory because it's so probably uh, unbelievable and a lot of people fall for the the alternative theory the conspiracy theory with alteration while uh, what we think what we suggest strongly, and what data suggests strongly, that uh, the art program is the is today's MKUltra, is, uh, is the the development mm -hmm. yeah. of this uh, 60s and 50s program. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because um, the harp is supposedly doing something in terms of sending enormous amounts of energy high up in the atmosphere and it's not it's not a big jump then to see to go from there to under seeing it as well from there they're able to manipulate localized weather by directing this energy it is not that out of this world to go there no, no. but what we suspect is the real purpose is even more in a way could be even more sinister than that they are doing this massive beaming of energy high up into the ionosphere in order to use it as a kind of <clears throat> a medium, a bit like a wireless medium through which to uh, directly affect, manipulate the emotions of people below it. Good. That's uh, the ionosphere basically is a, a wave mirror. It reflects waves. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the way you use uh, use the ionosphere to communicate over long distance between. Uh, Sailboats. That's a radio or, wave. Or ship, for example, yeah. Some kind of some kind of radio waves. Not all of them. So yeah, it's not a far stretch to imagine that uh, what up sends, what those massive antenna sends to the ionosphere, rebounds and goes back to Earth's surface, where humans are. And it's not a far stretch to see the connection with the brain, which is basically all about wave, wave patterns, and electric activity, and which is uh, highly interacting with its uh, electromagnetic milieu. Mm -hmm. That, in addition to the fact that there have been a number of patents and experiments, going back to the 70s at least, in geoengineering, some of which may have been successful, most probably weren't, some of which may have resulted in active programs today. We know for a fact that the Chinese government um, the Venezuelan government and most probably the American government have been attempting cloud seeding to try and induce rainfall during heavy droughts. Well, successfully, it's uh, yeah. cloud seeding is like the 
step one of weather manipulation. But what you say is true. It shows that the manipulation is quite smart. The lie is, is a smart lie because they invoke ARP as a weather alteration tool. And it makes sense because there is probably some weather alteration tools. But since people think often in a binary way, yes or no, black or white, they think, okay, since it's a ARP is a weather alteration tool, there is no mind control to wave device. It's not well, mutually exclusive. Well, Today, it's attack force may be possible. It's even worse than that because the people who promote ARP as a, a weather modification technology, um, if you look at what they say, they're saying that it's obviously it's a U.S.-owned uh, technology, U.S. operates, and um, therefore it's ours. And if it's essentially a kind of asymmetric kind of warfare, what else is it for? It's, it's a, I mean, the U.S. government isn't going to isn't going to use it against America. It's not. I mean, it's going to use it against enemies, right? So the idea is that it would create droughts or floods in other parts of the world targeted against you know evil, the axis of evil or something like that. Yeah. So um, that kind of placates people or, you know, it, it softens it and makes it not so scary anymore. You know, it's actually, well, ultimately it's it's no skin of our nose, you know, and maybe it's actually good because maybe they're getting those damn Marines with it or maybe they're attacking the Chinese or something. And so it deflects attention completely away from what it's probably really for, which is, as we've been saying, mind control to some extent or suppression of, uh, on a mass scale, suppression of the kind of uh, thinking abilities of the American people, you know, because when you turn it around to a mind control thing, well, then it becomes much more nefarious because you're thinking about what is the government or any government or any elite's major preoccupation and it's control over the population, control over the local population, yeah. not other populations, local population. It because becomes the stuff that they have done, if the American people, as George Herbert Walker Bush, as I to have said, if they ever found out what they had been doing. They would chase us down the streets or hang us in the streets or something along those lines, mm -hmm. which is true. Um, and I mean, that's not just conspiracy theory. I mean, we've had, we have, we've talked about MKUltra and the kind of stuff that has been done under the ages with the support of the US government and its intelligence agencies uh, against the American people. So that information is already out there. So when, if he said, if Bush said what what he is claimed to have said, what is claimed that he said, well then obviously the rabbit hole goes much deeper and it's much more than what's publicly known. Um, yeah, and if HAP was a weather alteration device controlled by the US, I'm not sure it's this efficient when you check the statistics about natural catastrophes or weather uh, Well, that leads us uh, into disruptions in the US. Okay, absolutely, well. that leads us into Another uh, topic that, that people really need to, to be aware of is, uh, is the kind of weather anomalies. Weather, the weather. It's, well, it changes. No. Well, yeah, climate change, whatever you want to call it, it's been, yeah. it's, it's continuing unabated or increasing. <laughs> um, just this last week, about a week ago, we had, I mean, the U.S., not just the U.S., but across that, across almost the whole northern hemisphere and then south as well into India and Pakistan but you had major floods in, across many areas Europe too? Uh, well 
up in the no- further north. In the no- yeah, uh, as a result of, of storms in, in Europe, you That's had, right, you had serious mm. serious hailstones the size of tennis balls. Uh, there's a story for it, and there was one in northern France that destroyed a village. Destroyed, you said. Yeah, in Massif Central, you had hail the size of a. I don't know how to translate that in English. Is petank balls? Yeah, of bowling. Um, baseballs. No, no, let's say Soft baseballs. Balls. Bigger. The size of baseballs. Bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baseballs. The size of baseballs, about uh, three inches yeah. in diameter. So that's really big. Yeah. And it was very local uh, thunderstorm that hit a village, a small village, and in this village, 70% of the houses were destroyed. Mm-hmm. Destroyed means the windows and the roof, yeah. gone. The, almost the whole village was covered with top, tops. Wow. Yeah, and it, um, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just in France, it was in Belgium and Germany. Uh, there were storms, and I think this has to do with uh, kind of, July was very hot across most of Europe, and then you had... Uh, uh, the jet stream changing and bringing down polar air, and it only you know it's northern Europe or the northern part of Western Europe that gets hit worst in those situations because that's where the the kind of clash point between the two are the crazy intense storms with major hail and major wind and major flooding. But you had it all across the U.S. Uh, you know, flash floods sweeping cars away uh, in Colorado and and right across the kind of Midwest. Uh, you had it in Russia in in eastern Russia. Major floods. You had major floods in Japan. Flash floods. Uh, many people being many people being killed or, or being swept away. Uh, also in Pakistan and India. More recently, uh, third monsoon era. But the, mon- the monsoon um, time is, uh, is is three months, and they're saying. But they're saying that it's you know it's double uh, the the usual rainfall for a monsoon day. For example, in, in 24 hours, they had double what they what they usually have in any given uh, day in previous years. And of course, in all these news reports, you get it. You get this explanation put out there that they're they're blaming it on uh, deforestation uh, causing. Um, but but the problem is that it's changed from year to year. There hasn't been so much. I mean, most deforestation has happened in in this in the modern era with modern machines and technology to affect it in, at an increasing rate. So the fact that it changed. It increased 100% from last year to this year. Suggests that it isn't just about deforestation. Yeah, yeah. The jet stream is uh, one cause, and we have explained. Uh, you have explained why uh, why it can increase rainfalls and storms. Um, I think in previous show we explained as well that uh, how the increase in uh, cometary dust, atmospheric cometary dust, can increase the frequency of uh, storms and lightnings. And maybe you can take, we can develop the case of uh, the typical summer storm. We didn't, we didn't uh, specifically ad- address this point. Let's imagine that uh, the jet stream is not involved here. You just have a, one of these uh, hot days, summer days. So it's summer. It means uh, your latitude is facing directly the sun. So the ionosphere above your head is getting a lot of solar winds, positive charge. It's highly charged. And in addition, the solar winds tend to compress the ionosphere towards, uh, so it's closer to the Earth. So a highly charged ionosphere, which is closer to the Earth, so you have a strong electric field between the ionosphere and the Earth's surface. And you add to that a lot of cometary dust, or more cometary dust. And cometary dust 
is makes the atmosphere less conductive, less conductive. So you don't have the fair weather leakage current. You know this constant movement of electrons from the Earth's surface to the ionosphere, positive ionosphere, to balance the charges between the ionosphere and the Earth's surface. On the contrary, you have a, uh, this very insulating dust charge atmosphere that prevents the fair weather circulation, electron circulation. And those electrons, instead of rising up to the ionosphere and balancing the charge, get captured by those no mobility dust particles. Mm -hmm. And that's how clouds form, basically. You, know, you will have uh, this hot air during this hot summer day. The hot air rises from the ground. It's warm and moist. It brings up water vapor. It brings up. It goes with electrons up in the sky, and it reaches those uh, dust clouds. The droplets form around those drop clouds. Electrons accumulate, are caught mm -hmm. by those clouds, and in the end. You have all those electrons at the bottom of those clouds, and in some places on Earth's surface, all those electrons that rise up, attracted by the positive ionosphere, created some electron-deficient regions on the Earth's surface, especially if the ground is not conductive. That's why you have much more lightnings above ground than above the sea, because above the sea, the conductive seawater can balance the electron deficiency, because it's very conductive. And uh, when the difference, potential difference, when the charge between the negative cloud and the electron deficient, i.e. positive Earth surface is high enough, uh, you get a discharge, you get a massive discharge. And uh, from that, we can deduce that the frequency of lightning in general around the world, and in particular in temperate regions where you have to factor in, in addition, the meandering jet stream, this frequency of lightning will be on the increase, probably. Well, the frequency of lightning does seem to be on the increase, if only as a result of the kind of reports that we've been seeing um, on, in, in various news media about people being hit or things being hit by lightning that really you haven't seen reported before. I mean, I kind of tend to gauge it in that there's probably a lot of lightning strikes on different buildings and stuff out there or even, you know, people's cars or that, are, that aren't reported, <clears throat> you know, because people just don't bother reporting them, right? No, um, only when it hits us directly. Because so, they're dead. Well, because they're dead or, or bec no, if they were dead, that would be a story. But uh, just because people don't bother reporting it. So when you do see, generally speaking, you don't see it at all. Uh, because there's either a small enough number combined with um, this lack of, you know, uh, tendency for people to, to actually go and bother trying to tell someone about it. But when you see it in the news, like a story um, uh, recently about a family that whose car was hit by lightning while they were driving. It was through a storm, the rain, it was raining and stuff, but... Um, and they were driving through it, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't high winds or anything. It was just raining quite a lot. And then all of a sudden, their car was hit by, by lightning. I basically fried the car. I've actually got a bit of a, an audio here from a from a news report about it that I think is, uh, is kind of instructive. So I'll, I'll let you listen to it. 
Holy crap. That fast. Lightning strikes, and this family has a moment never to forget. Freaked out. That's crazy. Taylor, Denham, and Tanner Morlock were driving with their dad to Church Wells in southern Utah. And the rain had been coming down all day when Taylor wished for something he couldn't take back. While we were driving, I said, I hope we get struck by lightning right at the beginning because we were in a really, like, big storm. Wish granted. A bolt of lightning strikes the SUV's antenna. It's hot. It's scary. It's loud really hot and it's pretty powerful. It was just like blazing hot. Reached inside my stomach and just twisted my insides. And, and really messed up the SUV. Radio antenna is just like gone. Um, all the electrical gauges shut off. You could definitely feel the hairs on your neck just go up. And with three tires blown out, they were stranded in the rain until someone driving by called for help. So yeah, they're they're driving along, and this the, you could hear it there. It's actually a video. That's an audio from a video, but you could you, they have a video of it. You know, you don't see it very well, but you see, you know, you, you see something kind of lighting up the car type of thing, and there's a noise like a thump, and uh, maybe that was their tires, but it basically blew out three of their tires, uh, fried all the electrics in the car, but charged their cell phones, and made the interior of the car extremely hot. No way. Yeah, but the interesting thing was. Uh, well, I don't know if it's interesting or not, maybe it's just a coincidence, but it's kind of interesting that the little kid just beforehand was saying, I mm. hope lightning strikes us. And then I think they're saying basically that within, right away, with, almost right away, <clears throat> they get hit, you know? And um, yeah, for what you wish for. I, I, found, I found this commentary uh, striking, uh, no pun intended. Uh-huh. And uh, <clears throat> sure, there's a lot of uh, of lightning that are just the cause of uh, charge disbalance and. Uh, the lightning follows the path of last resistance and it will hit the <coughs> peaks, summits, um, electric poles and uh, the places that are the most charged and the, in the highest position. It's a purely electric model and um, logical. But we might, uh, we might factor in also the information theory mm-hmm. factor and uh, yeah, if there's a connection between uh, the individuals, uh, the information they hold, mm-hmm. their consciousness, what they think, what they believe, maybe what they wish in some cases. And we remember the, the study of uh, Professor Yan and, and uh, Dr. Dunas about the capacity of human beings to influence so-called random events. So maybe this boy uh, mm-hmm. got his uh, wish fulfilled, unfortunately. Well, the interesting thing was that they're driving along this road and it had... Uh, Telephone, either electric or telephone yeah. poles along the side of the road. I about but it that. hit a three foot tall, not even two foot tall, uh, thin metal wires, the antenna, the radio antenna of their car. That That's what was, you know, saw the most damage. That seems to have channeled the electrical uh, charge, but it yeah. wasn't so that it, it can't be said that, that was the highest point in that particular area. It had been very localized and the car was moving sure. along the road. So it's a very. But there are several parameters, you know. Where is the lightning going to strike? There is the hill elevation, because uh, the higher you are, the the lower the distance between the point and the cloud, where the negative charge accumulates. There's also the the charge on the ground, you know. Um, usually, lightning strike. Eighty-five percent of the lightning are cloud to ground lightning. 
so it means they carry electron basically from the cloud that is very negative to the ground that is less negative. It rebalances charge like rain does. And um, so if you have an area that is quite low, but for whatever reason quite positive, it will strike here. So indeed, elevation is not the only factor. There is elevation, there is electric charge locally on the ground, and there is also possibly influence of the observers. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of three factors. Mm. But it's still quite remarkable that this car moving along at a fairly high rate of speed uh, yeah. was chosen, <laughs> if that's the right word. Yeah. This reminds me of a story from earlier this year. Um, where lightning strikes on a small U.S. Air Force base. I've forgotten where, but they interviewed the, the guy who was manning the tower, some young officer, and he was a bit shocked because it, it, had, it had struck directly on the actual paved, not the runway itself, but closer to his observation point. And you see there's, there's video camera trained on that area, and it, it catch, captures the moment the strike hits. It, it could have hit higher points, Hmm. But it hit the ground and it actually broke a chunk of pavement or paving right off. And they interviewed him and he he was a bit stunned still like a week after. And he seemed more surprised. He seemed surprised that it had hit. He was pretending to go along with what was just, you know, a, a regular news. I mean, it's just a lightning strike. No big deal. And he was, yeah, 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 answering the questions. But he he was a bit miffed by where it had chosen to discharge on the most flat surface when it could have hit anything standing up. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. Elevation is easy to see. It's visible. Electric charge in the ground, electric charge variation is more difficult to uh, evaluate. And uh, actually when you see a Tesla coil, you see this sometimes, some of those people, they create Tesla coils, they install them on, on top of a post, like five meters above the ground. And Tesla coils basically is a lightning generator. And they switch on the Tesla coil, and you see all those discharges, lightning, with the environment on the wall of the house nearby, or on the fence, on the tree, on the ground, because there's a, another phenomenon that has an influence on the local charges on the ground. If you have an intense storm activity with a lot of lightnings, once a lightning strikes in one place, it rebalances charges and displaces. Is not an attractor or is less of an attractor than before the strike. That's why people usually say lightnings never strike right, twice, twice in the same place. Mm. Uh, Nicholas on, uh, in the chat room said he understood that when when in your car the tires act an insulator, so there would be very a very low likelihood of getting struck by lightning in your car. Well, the, it, there's a very uh, low likelihood to be electrocuted in the car because uh, it's oh, a Faraday okay. cage. Be, yeah, and these people obviously were, were fine. They, they they weren't injured in any way. Yeah, and uh, because it, uh, because the the electricity of the lighting will be channeled by the body of the car, it won't go through you. Yeah. But uh, especially if it rains, a car is conductive and the rain around the tires will make the old body, the old, uh, the rain all around will make the, the car very conductive. Mm -hmm. And uh, but it reminds me of another story that uh, we found recently because uh, when we've been talking about this uh, epidemic of fertilizer plants explosion mm -hmm. and uh, unexplained fire and uh, more generally uh, chemical plants and uh, power stations and uh, after a few research we realized that over the last three months more than 40 plants 
had uh, experienced explosions and or fires. And then uh, we went on investigating and we found this uh, puzzling incident in La Salle in the US in April, April 18th maybe. A nuclear plant uh, went through an incident after being struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's usual who suggested that. Mm -hmm. uh, To what extent a a nuclear plant plume could attract discharges? And here we're talking about discharges in general, lightning, but also cometary discharges. And um, after a few research, we realized that uh, plumes, uh, nuclear plant plumes, can be attractors for two reasons. A, it is made, made mostly of water vapor, which is a very good conductor. It means electrons can rise through the chimney, which is full of iron or three bars, full of steel, and then through the plume, which is highly conductive because of the vapor. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is that nuclear plants emit ionizing waves, ionizing radiations. And ionizing radiations, like the word uh, indicates, uh, ionize molecules. So you create charge separation in the plume. You will have a lot of negative ions and a lot of positive ions. And you will have the negative ions attracted by the positive ionosphere on the top of the plume and the positive ions negative uh, attracted by the Earth's surface negative at the bottom of the plume. So you have you can figure you can picture this long plume over the nuclear plant extending over kilometers and all the top of the plume at the side that is exposed exposed to clouds and to incoming cometary bodies, all the top of this plume nicely negatively charged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the incident that you're referring to was back in April at uh, La Salle nuclear plant, uh, I think it's near Chicago, and it was struck by lightning. Yeah. And it, was, it took out both, it took out the power to both of the reactors. So um, I think, the pro- I mean, it's obviously very worrying here, not just the fertilizer and gas plant type uh, events uh, were that seemed to as far as we're concerned, seem to have some kind of a relationship with cometary bodies, uh, either, and that doesn't exclude lightning or electrical discharge. But um, it seems so far anyway that in the instance with nuclear reactors, uh, it's an indirect threat is indirect in a way because uh, it seems that nuclear, from what we've seen anyway, nuclear power plants tend to attract lightning strikes that then uh, shut down power to the reactors and that if that isn't dealt with very quickly you can have a kind of a meltdown and it, so indirectly you can have a serious nuclear uh, problem, nuclear plant problem um, but as of yet we haven't seen uh, nuclear power stations getting <laughs> getting hit by meteorites which will be an altogether different uh, kettle or well, barrel fish There was another situation. one which I hadn't heard until I found it a couple of days ago, May 3rd, so about two weeks after that one, in Georgia, power plant explosion sounded like a sonic boom earthquake and earthquake. Two people injured. Residents from miles around heard and felt the explosion allegedly caused by a malfunctioning turbine. Now, this wasn't a nuclear plant. It was a coal-powered plant, but it was the second largest 
such plant in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Um, and I think they they have to shut down 95% of their systems as a result. They didn't say, you know, what kind of explosion, you know. Of course, they wouldn't know. And that's that's the one, it's the only thing all these incidents have in common is that you go to them and say, well, what happened? We don't know. We just know it's happening more often. Mm-hmm. And you have the, this Venezuela plant as well. Yeah, the oil refinery. Yeah, oil refinery. That that, uh, it was it was the um, the kind of mixing pool. It's a where um, hydrocarbons, oil basically, and and water are mixed. It's a separating pool, I think. Yes, uh, it's a big, basically open air pool beside the in the oil refinery uh, compound, and it um, it was hit by lightning. Exactly, and it ignited yeah. the oil in this very large pool and caused yeah. a massive fire. I mean, there's just so many incidents, uh, you know, all around the world we're seeing these pop up where lightning strikes or what appear to be comet, overhead comet uh, explosions or detonations are centered on these kind of, um, these these installations. These are tractors for discharges because of the the specificities of the plumes. The plumes are high up and they are electrically charged. That's two factors to maximize uh, uh, attractions. For discharges, a cometary discharge or lightning discharge, but the, the last sad event is quite ironic. Actually, if you check about the history of lightning rods, you will see that in 1913, a new kind of lightning rod was introduced. It was a radioactive lightning rod Ooh. made of americium. Americium. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a radioactive element because, as I said previously, because of this ionizing radiation generated by radioactive elements, you get discharge separation which can act as an attractor for lightning. So, yeah, it's a, it was kind of a smart idea, except that there are 10 of thousand lightning rods over churches and buildings. It's a, a strong pollution. But ironically, in the sense that today, nuclear plants are some kind of giant lightning rods. Uh, what is puzzling about the LaSalle incident is that of course, nuclear plants are designed to sustain lightning discharges. They are covered with lightning rods. They are big, big lightning wires connecting the top of the chimneys to the ground. So it's difficult to say what caused the LaSalle incident, but a lightning bringing down two reactors, um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's quite puzzling. You have pictures. If you check on Google, uh, lightning and nuclear plant, you, you can see pictures, at least one, where you have a lightning that strikes right in the middle of the reactor. And the reactor went on fine. They didn't strike the reactor per se. It was right, right in the middle of the chimney, and it was channeled uh, through the lightning rod, lightning wires to the ground. Yeah, so it's, we're dealing with a new phenomenon here. I think it's a problem, and it's, uh, it's a new science mm. to some extent, really. Um, that the modern mainstream science hasn't encountered before because otherwise, I mean, not like you're saying, Pierre, I mean, uh, why, how can this happen uh, when um, nuclear we, plants obviously have been hit by lightning before and yeah. they have set up lightning rods to, to, and lightning rods are meant to work, but, uh, and they do work. And most, they've been working most of for the half time. a century. Well, um, most of the time, yeah. Not always because... Um, we don't know everything about lightning. There's an electric dimension, of course, in lightnings, but there might be more. So we can only speculate, but there are several cases. Well, um, 
like uh, we mentioned this recidive and this ranger that got struck seven times, but you have a lot of reports of uh, buildings literally covered with lightning rods. And then the lightning strikes uh, on the wall that is not conductive, there's no metal, <clears throat> there's no wire, there's no no water. So I think we don't factor in all the variables that defines how lightning well, the behaves. True, the true nature of the lightning is, yeah, not, is not known. There might be more there might be something extra more than the electric nature of lightning. And uh well and then if you factor in the asteroids, cometary bodies, the big problem is that mainstream science doesn't acknowledge the electric nature of cometary bodies. And uh <clears throat> the two specificities of incoming asteroids is A, the very high electric charge, and so very high electric discharge, and B, the opposite polarity. Apparently, it's not a uh, like a lightning goes from cloud to ground because the the ground is more positive. Mm -hmm. Apparently, it's the opposite with an asteroid. Mm. In most cases, that's a ground that is most negative. So you have a current that is stronger and that it goes in the opposite direction. So your protection systems... It goes from the ground up, is what you're saying. Yeah. You may get lightning from the ground to a common yeah. body or yeah. a meteorite. Yeah, so the protection systems that are designed for... Downwards. For downwards, weak, uh, quote-unquote, current might not be adapted to protect an installation against the upward, yeah, very strong current. Yeah. Well, talking about uh, trying to understand the, this electrical nature of comets and meteorites, um, there's a NASA has been uh, apparently uh, or has taken the opportunity um, to investigate some aspects of the Russian meteorite back in. Um, March, February 15th. February 15th this year, uh, in Chelyabinsk in Russia. <clears throat> and they they went uh, as far as to release a, a little video on their their study of the after effects of that meteorite. And, um, and they published it on the web. And I will just let you listen to it here. It's early morning on February 15th, 2013. A meteor weighing 10,000 metric tons is about to explode nearly 23 kilometers above Chelyabinsk. Shortly after local sunrise, a blinding sight for the stunned spectators on the ground. massive explosion equivalent to 440 kilotons of TNT. Hundreds of tons of debris released and quickly moved up into the atmosphere. The highly sensitive OMPS instrument on board the SUMI MPP satellite made its first observation of the plume. Nearly three and a half hours later, an entire 1,100 kilometers east of the explosion and already at 40 kilometers altitude, well into the Earth's stratosphere. A surprising observation since the stratosphere usually acts as a bumper that caps aerosols trying to rise up from the lower atmosphere. By inserting a column of data from the first plume observation into two NASA models, scientists were able to project the plume's trajectory. 
The model showed that the plume at higher altitudes, shown in red, would move ahead of the lower layer, shown in yellow. The reason would be the difference in wind velocity at the lower and higher altitudes. Also illustrated here is how accurately the satellite observations coincided with the projected path of the plume. When OPS made its second observation, back at Chelyabinsk, nearly five hours after the bolide, there was still evidence of the plume at a lower 30-kilometer altitude. On February 16th, one day after the bolide, the OMPS instrument detected the far end of the plume even further at 1,700 to 4,300 kilometers eastward from the explosion. By February 19th, four days after the explosion, the satellite observation showed that the meteor debris had circumnavigated the entire globe and returned to Chelyabinsk forming a complete global belt. The clean shape of the belt was another surprising prediction considering that northern hemisphere winds during the winter are usually rather inconsistent in direction. A further look into the model simulation showed that evidence of the plume would persist for a long time which also coincided with the satellite observations. There you have it folks. Comet, yeah. comet dust. <clears throat> this is what we've been talking about. And uh, well, there are several uh, interesting tidbits in this uh, in this video. Uh, the first one is the the power of the of the explosion four four hundred forty uh, kilotons. That's twenty two times Nagasaki explosion. Um, the other tidbit is the the size, the weight of meteor with 10,000 metric tons. I don't know how they managed to evaluate that. I've heard so it's, many different figures. <clears throat> I think it's a way to maintain the mainstream theory that meteorites uh, risks are correlated to the size, it's purely mechanical. Mm. And as we see more and more, the main risk coming from meteorites is not mechanical, it's mostly EMP, electromagnetic pulse, electric discharges, and uh, accompanying uh, microbes and virus and uh, and um, mutagenic capabilities. And the third point is, uh, at the end, they say it's puzzling because the plume went along the circumference of, of the Earth faster than the wind. And that's another consequence. It's a kind of a, I mean, proof, quote-unquote, of the electric nature of the, our atmosphere. The particles, the particles get charged, and they are some. They are um, how to say that um, they are the object of the. They are submitted to the electric field mm -hmm. between the atmosphere, the ionosphere, and they are submitted as well to the magnetic field mm -hmm. of the planet, and uh, therefore there is a subsequent Lorentz force an electromotive force that is perpendicular to the electric field and to the magnetic field, and then that we propel the charged particles around the atmosphere, like the jet stream, basically. It's exactly the same process. Well, they were saying, though, that the, the, their problem was that normally, in the wintertime, when this took place, that the that these currents, like the jet stream, for example, is usually very, um, not very... Erratic. Well, it's erratic. It's not, yeah, it, it doesn't conform in, in, a, in a fairly straightforward continuous band around the northern hemisphere and they were expecting that this dust 
or this uh, this debris from the meteorite would have been carried along with this wind and should have shown a pattern similar to the the erratic pattern of the of the northern jet stream. But, but it's didn't. higher. It's higher up in the air. It's yeah. higher, less uh, turbulences, less resistance, and more ionization. Mm-hmm. The higher you go, the more ionized the air is. So the more ionized the particle gets, so the more, the more electric the behavior is, and the less uh, um, mechanical mm-hmm. the behavior is. The more that is guided by electrical uh, exact factors. Yeah, this was just one body. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are. Like, how many reports have we had of of exploding fireballs? Yeah. And each one will leave a significant amount of debris in the atmosphere that will be carried and cover the entire planet. Well, talking about um, overhead meteorite detonations, there was um, a story that I was surprised actually to see um, in the news just this, I think it was just this week, um, well, it's from, it's from about a week ago. <clears throat> it's in um, it's from Winnipeg, and there were at least uh, it's reported about there having been at least fifty blackbirds found dead near the intersection of two streets um, in Winnipeg on the twelfth of August. And this reminds us again of the events that we've had on the first of the year, the past two years, <clears throat> not including this year, I don't think, but two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, on the mm. first. On the first day of the year, of those two years, there were these uh, bird deaths, birds falling from the sky. And this uh, this report that we talked about at the time in an article that we wrote about um, about this uh, a weather weather station looked at the Doppler radar effect and saw this kind of a plume or an explosion, a plume of some kind of material on the Doppler radar over that yeah. area at about 7,000 feet, I think, at that time. And that yeah, and it seemed to stretch upwards more yeah, than anything. Yeah, yeah. And that um, that is the most plausible explanation for, in that case, I think that was in Beebe, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, that was the most plausible explanation for the bird dials. People are t- coming up with all sorts of outlandish uh, theories, like they just suddenly the birds all ran, flew into buildings, or you know they were hit by you know I don't know, yeah, something 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 ridiculous, but. The most obvious explanation was that it, that that they were that they were hit by the shockwave from an, from this thing that was recorded, this detonation of something, most likely a meteorite, in the area at about seven thousand feet uh, on that night. And um, it's just interesting to see that we we were kind of thinking that there was something about the first of the year, but obviously not, since there was another one on August twelfth. So that's just an example of. I mean, I haven't had a chance to look at what was going on in the Winnipeg area. Um, on that day, but chances are you'll find uh, at least a sighting of a fireball or a meteorite in the sky uh, on one of the websites that tracks them uh, from from eyewitnesses. Chances are you'll see uh, that there was something in the sky at that time, you know. Um, so it just adds to the yeah, like as Neil was saying, the amount of uh, fireballs and that that people have been seeing around the world are just they're getting ridiculous at this point. I mean, it's just it's just it's it's expanding and increasing exponentially, really. And also, the number of booms that people have been hearing. There's been many many reports of unknown, uh, you know, booms or sonic people ascribing them to sonic booms in the in the sky. Um, that's ongoing as well, you know. 
And then, so if these are, you know, incoming rocks of various different sizes exploding in the atmosphere, it just adds to this, uh, this, this, this comet dust that we've, or, or meteorite, or rock, space rock dust that's in our atmosphere, and that ties into, obviously, the weather, the crazy weather we've been having, as we've discussed in previous shows, and um, well, also the threat yeah. of, of some microbes. And uh, and Pierre, sorry to interrupt. Could you go back to your your explanation of, of why lightning discharges anyway, and, and what's different about there being if there's more comet dust there between the surface and the ionosphere? Is it that I think you explained it to me earlier in the week, and the, the way I made sense of it is that lightning discharges to the ground anyway, naturally, because it, there's an imbalance that's trying to rebalance. Yeah. And with more comet dust there, there's more resistance. Therefore, exactly. there's more of a build-up, more intense, and yeah. boom, there needs to be a higher, there needs to be a, a, a more charge. rapid charge to rebalance things. Yeah, two features of uh, cometary dust in the atmosphere is that A, they make the, the atmosphere more resistant, so there is less uh, what is called fair weather circulation, natural rebalancing without discharge, without lightning, without uh, anything uh, really visible or catastrophic. And B, this cometary dust captures electrons and allows the creation of charged regions in the atmosphere, clouds. That's why an increase in cometary dust in the atmosphere is likely to increase the frequency of lightnings and many other things uh, that we can develop. Mm -hmm. Maybe another show like hurricanes, tornadoes, and depressions. Mm. All those twisting uh, and flooding as well, obviously, because of the like in, in the sense of yeah. rather than having uh, a more gradual release of of rain, exactly. it builds up, builds up, builds up, and you get a flood. You get it all at once, as opposed to over a period of yeah. For the the rain, the, the increase in rainfall. Uh, is due, among other factors, to the increase in cometary dust because uh, cometary dust acts as a nucleation agent mm -hmm. around which droplets form. So not necessarily that you would have more rain falling on the planet, but that that rain would be maybe taken, depending on weather patterns and stuff, you would have more rainfall over a smaller area than, you, than, than generally, than previously, where you would have it more widespread. And this ties into what has been going on in the US, where... Uh, you have basically massive drought. drought in one section and floods mm. a few hundred miles away. You know, yeah. There's a meandering jet stream to factor in as well. There is the cooling down of the upper upper atmosphere to factor in, uh, which acts in the following way: during fair weather, when the, during a hot day of summer, the electrons freely raise up, it's convection, and the warm moist air freely raise up. But since the higher atmosphere is cooler, you have more condensation, basically, and that's uh, yeah. the logical consequence. And because of the cometary dust, you have more nucleation. And mm. nucleation and condensation are the two main drivers of cloud formation. Mm. And uh, from clouds to rain, there's only one step, um, which is a, um, a coalescence, mm -hmm. transformation of droplets in uh, uh, water drops. And this coalescence is increased by electric field. Uh, droplets submitted to an electric field tends to coalesce more and to drop down. And when they drop down, they drop from a negatively charged area, the cloud, 
on the ground that is uh, electron deficient and like a lightning they um, allow they enable a rebalancing of the local electric charge between the cloud and the earth surface mm-hmm. we have a call here so i'm going to go ahead and take Hi, Colin. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, wait. What's your name? Where are you calling from? My name is Lori, and I'm calling from Idaho. Hi, Lori. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you. You guys, the show is awesome. Thank I you. I have a question Thanks. about how the electrical nature of what you're talking about, the weather patterns and stuff, would affect fire. We have a big fire here in in the same area as there was a big fire last year. And the one this year is behaving very erratically, showing um, it's like it throws fire out of itself across a large area, like an arc almost. And I was wondering... Um, so it's like a fire starts, and you're describing the way it spreads from one area to another? Yeah. It's, it's behaving differently across. than the fire last year because it's just it's it's creating these big... Mm vortexes of fire and then it, it throws fire off of itself. It, it wow, looks it's... more electrical than the fire was last year. The pictures are bizarre. Well, that's a very good question and I'm not sure we have the answer, but we can have uh, some tentative uh, hypothesis. Um, You're talking about like the ionization from the cometary dust and stuff. Could that change the atmosphere so that fires would behave differently <laughs> yeah well, well as a follow-on question i wonder does it directly change the atmosphere on the ground the lower level of the atmosphere because we have historical precedent for for strange behavior of fires i'm thinking of the chicago fire back in 1870 something where that did some bizarre things well let's let's ask the question what um if if there was a change in electrical charge on the surface of the planet or below in the Earth's crust, how would that or might that affect fire? A fire, yeah. Pierre. Um. <laughs> well, just, just throw an I, idea. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, you don't well, know. I, I can I can throw an idea. No. I don't, frankly, I don't know, Laurie. It's a very good point, and but. Uh, it really exercises my mind, I'm sure, and I have much more work for for the coming book. So thank you for the inspiration and for the question. Well, I don't know, but maybe um, you mentioned the word vortex. So you probably see those spiraling upward um, shape of fire. Yeah, what and you vi- very yeah. violent looking, very, very fast and, and just weird. Yeah. <laughs> Tornado-like. Yeah. Yeah, well, tornado should definitely be increased by the incoming cometary dust because basically, tornado is also an electric rebalancing phenomenon yeah. where you have a electron movement, electron circulation. It's between the fair weather circulation where the electron ascend gently from the Earth's surface to the ionosphere or to the cloud between this fair weather and the, more vo- and the violent discharge we described previously, the lining. In between that, you have electrons that still rise, but that rise with more intensity, with a spiraling um, trajectory, spiraling uh, trajectory because of the 
you check on Google Birkland currents, you will see that uh, interacting electrons on the same trajectory tend, tend to spiral around each other. So you're saying that these could, if this was happening inside of a fire, a large fire, you would have these kind of like fire, you would have, would they have a direct effect on the actual flames and the, the combustion? It can because, well, I've been thinking about it previously, uh, but I'm, it's not uh, very clear yet. But this convection phenomenon, this rising air, which goes with, uh, with fires because fire heat up the air that rise up, and yeah, these are causing their own the storms. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it will raise particles as well. It will increase the smoke, it will uh, increase the resistance and the build-up of charge difference between the higher part of the atmosphere, cloud and regions. All the, the stuff and, that's and the burning ground. has water in it and pushes that moisture up too, right? So Vapor as well that will, uh, can increase condensation, yeah. Yet, so there's probably those, uh, those factors work. I would say, Laurie, that it's probably linked, Well, although we don't have it completely figured out yet, but I would say to everybody that they need to be very careful uh, in general around fires, that fires may not, like especially wildfires and, and things like that, will not act or may not act as you expect them to, and fire never does, but it may be even more uh, strange or or worse than than, than people have, have Yeah, Yeah, the, have fi- the fire the officials have... The fire officials have remarked about it several times that this fire is just very bizarre and they don't understand why its behavior is so different than previous fires. Yeah, like the, there was that story about the 19 firefighters who were exactly. killed, I think, in, uh, was it Colorado? Yeah. I think it was Arizona. That was Arizona. Or, Arizona, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that, that was unusual in the sense that these guys are veterans and they know what fires do, yet yeah. 19 of yeah. them were caught unawares, you know, so that suggests that there was something strange about that fire. Oh, yeah. It, it, well, if you have an increase in cometary dust in the atmosphere, you have the build-up of those uh, local charges in the atmosphere, so build-up of electric field between those clouds and uh, or between those regions in the atmosphere and, uh, and your surface, that leads to those uh, electron movements that take those uh, vortex trajectories, and those vortex, those air vortex, uh, fuel the fires in at least two ways. Uh, a, it increases the, it brings air, air circulation to the fire, like when you you blow on a fire mm-hmm. to increase uh-huh. its intensity. And B, by definition, an electric current generates heat as well. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, through the air incoming air and through the electric induced, electrically induced heat, you have two factors that increase the fire. Will make it more intense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good point, uh, Laurie, and I think it definitely factors into to what we're seeing because all of these things are connected, you know, floods, tornadoes, wildfires, you know. The extremes. Uh, all of the extremes are all, yeah. all do seem to have a common a common linkage between them, and we think it's uh, ultimately electrical in nature, and that expands out, obviously, to, you know, the whole electrical nature of the universe and uh, changes that are ongoing and uh, in our solar system, in the sun, and even the positive idea of a of a twin sun, and the whole idea of electric uh, electric uh, electrical nature of a, of a solar system or a binary star system with a yeah, our an incoming whole, our whole uh, area of space is kind of behaving exactly. differently. <laughs> it's charging up, yeah. Did Did you, Laurie, or anyone around you, notice anything particular about the fire that made you think, "Hang on, that's not actually fire." I'm asking because there was a story in from Texas earlier in the year where it wasn't a wildfire, but 
um, I think a series of telephone poles <clears throat> along a, along a street all caught fire, or they appeared to catch fire. They were not actually on fire. It was some kind of plasma-like flame coming off. Them. But well, that was associated, yeah. I think, with a, with an overhead an overhead passage because that's been reported before. Uh, I mean, either some kind of electrical phenomenon because it was reported back in the uh, the Carrington uh, event back in eighteen ninety-nine, where telegraph poles burst into flames or mm. had some kind of activity going on. And that's what you're talking about. I think was associated either with um, it. I don't think it was a solar flare as the Carrington thing it was more likely to be a passage of of some kind of a electrically charged body in the atmosphere. That yeah, and I remember for some reading reason, about that too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's so, what I uh, meant by the the fire, like like arcing, like electricity would arc. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's it's just there's a piece of the fire that just that just gets flung out of the fire. And it's starting another fire, like, I mean, sometimes hundreds of yards away, which is weird for well, a fire. That is wow. very, very strange, and it brings to mind the the reports about the the Great Fire of Chicago, where people were reporting flames moving across open land with no no that's, observable source of combustion. Yeah, that's the Mrs. O'Leary's cow kind of thing, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Vertical arcing. Did you see it yourself? I saw it on the TV. Okay. They were taking they had pictures talk- of it. No, I haven't been that close to the fire myself. I've been close enough to have ashes falling on me, but. Mm-hmm. And were the arcs vertical? No, horizontal. They're it's like out the across. flames. The, the flames are like yeah, the flames are like say like forty, fifty feet high, and then it'll just come horizontally out of the fire. Mm-hmm a piece of fire and start another fire 150, 200 yards away. Like jump across. That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, is the video on the Internet? You know, I don't know if it's on the Internet. I might look up the local TV station. Yeah. Yeah. See if, if you can if find, you can find it, uh, yeah. send it to us. Send it to us. Lovely, though. And in the meantime, you stay safe. Yeah, stay safe, Laurie. Oh, I will. I live a long ways from it. We were just camping up there in the mountains. In the same okay. place on the well, same weekend well, where they found the girl, Hannah. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, we got to see what's the that? South... Hmm? Cascade, Idaho. What's that, what's that story about? The girl, girl that got kidnapped in San Diego, and, and the guy took her to the Frank Church Wilderness area that's up by Cascade, oh. Idaho. And, they, yeah. and the FBI okay. guys shot him. Yeah, we were in that area oh, yeah. on that weekend. <laughs> oh wow! Well, definitely stay safe then. I mean, even though you know you've been okay so far, just keep your eyes peeled. You know, wow. Yeah, I will. And thank you it's... for your question. It was a uh, very uh, stimulating. Oh, it is. I'm glad. I, it, oh. It'd be nice to see some more information on the possible electrical nature of fire itself. Yeah, we'll have to look into it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All thanks right. for your All time. Right, Lori, thanks for your call. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I, I think the general observation to be made to back Laurie up is that she's not alone in noticing that fires are particularly strong in intensity. I mean, this, this, this crack team of firefighters in Arizona, if they have a name for the term. I think they're called like the Star Firefighting Force or something. You know, I mean, these guys were out there and I think... 
what what it showed is that the old techniques of fighting fire with fire, where they would you know try and scorch the earth to starve off its combustion, these guys were caught quicker than they could get out, mm. and, and they had to do the only technique to try and survive, which was to dig a hole in the ground and put a kind of a fire blanket, blanket over them. Didn't matter; they were scorched. All but one of them, I think. Mm. Really tragic. But it showed you how how fast this came on and how intense it was. Yeah, and I know people will say, well, the fire is very dangerous and it can come on very fast anyway, but these guys were doing it yeah. as their job, as their full-time job, and they were the kind of elite firefighters. So certainly they knew all of the dangers of fire, but even then, mm. in this instant, or this instance, something happened that they that could, did not predict. Yeah, and uh, if it happens in rural areas, in fields or forest. Uh, they will assume it's not an electric fire, and they will fight it with the uh, traditional techniques against forest fires, basically retardants and water. Uh, the problem is, if it's an electric fire, or if there's an electric dimension to the fire, putting water on it well, will increase conductivity and will, uh, will make it worse. Make it more intense, yeah. And they might get uh, electrocuted in addition. Yeah, we've noticed this ourselves. There have been some, quite a few fires in the area here. There was one really intense one that scorched an entire barn. Yeah. Like 10,000 bales of hay went up in smoke. Well, yeah, here, yeah that, but apparently what Louis was talking about, he was the the particular features of the fire per mm. se, those vortex and the mode of propagation, um, those barns burning. It might be related. It might be some impacts well, or some discharges. Um, I think I've seen some stats showing that firefighters, uh, wildfire numbers have increased year on year. If you have more meteorites, uh, it's not um, inconsistent to notice also more fires. can be a cause. Um, another chat room member has uh, just said that he was reading an experiment where, or the report of an experiment by... Um, but where Tesla was doing experiments to induce visible flame or a visible flame-like phenomenon that looked like fire but wasn't entirely fire or even hot. And that, again, if that's true, that, again, um, ties back to this uh, the reports from the Great Fire of Chicago where people, this wall of flame was moving across open land with no visible source of combustion and people who were in its path were found dead but unburned in any way. But in one case, uh, copper coins or coins in his pocket, in, the, in this man's pocket, were, were fused together. Uh, so that's a, you know that that ties in with the idea of this kind of a fire, the fire that that we're talking about in terms of the Great Chicago Fire and Tesla's alleged experiments. Uh, that it's not hot electrical fire. That is not essentially hot in the sense that it burns normal organic materials, but it does. Essentially, melt metal. Yeah, if it's electric, it would follow the path of least resistance. Uh, it would go through metal. It would heat up metals. It would not go through. Uh, usually, uh, it won't. It won't go through human bodies that are quite uh, resistant, it not very conductive. But it might fry their all the metal on them. It might fry their electrical system though. Yeah, i.e., their heart and their brain. Mm. Or it might, especially if it, it goes through them, them. get a heart attack. Yeah. Especially if it goes through them, passes over them and through them. Um, there's a pattern here where even all the things we we thought we knew, we have to go back to the drawing board and 
re-examine them in light of this new factor, the the fireball and meteor phenomenon, because it it seems to be changing the environment in a way that, or at least opening our eyes to phenomena that we thought were you know, more or less settled. Yeah, science is settled kind of thing. We've got to go back and it affects everything. It affects. It can affect everything. Uh, things as fundamental and as settled, apparently, as the spinning frequency of the planet or the tilt of the planet or, or the geomagnetic field of the planet. Or, did you hear the story this week about a study, Joe, you were telling me? Mm-hmm. It's a Stanford study. What did they come up with? Stanford study on what? They said that the planet is heating from oh, within. Yeah. yeah, well, that's what they, you know, yeah, a study saying that uh, the Arctic ice shelf was melting, as everybody knows it does in summertime, usually. Uh, uh, global warming, or rather seasonal warming. I think global warming should be changed to seasonal warming. And then there should also be seasonal cooling. Um, but that the Arctic ice shelf, or the you know the ice coverage on in the Arctic uh, area was melting, but that most of it, most of the heat, was coming from inside the planet. Uh, I didn't actually uh, look into it to the point where they explained how they had figured out or how they knew that the heat was coming from inside the planet. But I suspected it, it's something to do with the fact that they had no evidence that there was enough heat coming from from the atmosphere. Yeah, that was my take on it. The, the way they reached this conclusion, from what I understood, is that they compared two models. One model factoring in atmospheric variables and one model adding the internal heat variable. And they saw, they concluded, that the later model was more reliable. Its predictions mm-hmm. were closer to the measurements, to the observations. And uh, I tend to agree with your conclusion. It's a way to find heat mm somewhere else Mm -hmm. because there's not enough heat in the atmosphere so they factor in uh, internal heat however um, I'm not sure the the earth is is hotter or warmer globally but locally and on the surface uh, it might be hotter in some places because of the we mentioned in the previous shows the slowdown of the earth and the reduction of the internal electric field deform the earth, reduce the binding forces, and triggers a little opening up. Opening up means uh, <clears throat> that the crust lets more gases, more magma, mm-hmm. more hot substance seeping through and reaching the surface. So that might be uh, a correlation with this uh, quote-unquote uh, heating up. Speaking of he- uh, heating up or opening up, as you just said, there was uh, recently a massive Kansas sinkhole opened up and it's really impressive i think we touched on that last week did we mm. but anyway it's 90 feet deep it's growing i think 300 feet wide and still growing yeah because yeah, there's cracks all around the edges and i was just watching a video of it and um of people there and there's people like it's it's really impressive it's very big it kind of reminds me of that uh, of the sarlacc for any return of the jedi fans or star wars fans the sarlacc uh, 
the, the great pit of Carcoon <laughs> in Return of the Jedi. Um, it's like a big version of that without the big mouth at the bottom. But um, you never know, that might appear one of these days. Uh, because there were, there's video of people there, and it's really, really big. It's like 300 feet across, 90 feet deep. That's a big hole. And it appeared over almost overnight over, I mean, no one seems to know, but it seems that they say over two days, but no one seems to have been... It was uh, in a remote... Well, they right. said two days because I think the only person they could find that was there that said it wasn't there was had been there two days beforehand, and then someone discovered it two days later. So they said it was two days, but it, you know it could have all it could have happened all at once for all they know. But at least at at, at the at the very least it opened within two days, and there were people walking down, you know, right in the bottom of it, and uh, and there's police there and stuff, and but people apparently it's an attraction, it's like a mini Grand Canyon or something. And people are just sauntering down, and and no one seems to take notice of the fact that this may have opened all of a sudden, and they're standing down there at the bottom of it, taking pictures of them. But it's great. There's something to do and see in Kansas now. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, but it's in the middle of nowhere, and the guy says, you know, there's no um, there's no oil well or any kind of there be no underground drilling or anything that could have caused this. Uh, of course, you know, geologists come up with you know water or an underground aquifer, you know, mixed with a salt bed. Blah blah blah, well, off in the ground above. But this just opened up, and it's one of many, many, as, as listeners will know and readers at that will know, it's been one of many that have uh, been opening up over the past number of years. And um, yeah, and I just thought it was interesting that the sheriff actually, when he was asked about it, he said, "Man has nothing to do with this. This is a God thing. There's no oil well here." Blah blah blah. He says, "This is something that just happened." So, um, so just ride with Jesus. No, I mean, you can see how <laughs> when these things kind of start happening, people just go with. Yeah, they defer to God. God. God did it, and uh, well, we gotta pray. When when their other option and the main option that's provided is whenever the sinkhole story comes up, it's yeah, um, heavy rains washed away the undersoil, therefore the ground collapsed. Now, when you've got a great big hole appearing more or less overnight in a hot Rye center of Kansas, that's not going to fly with the locals. No. But also, it was interesting that there's a guy there who was interviewed and he, he's looking at it and he says, Well, where did it all go? Where did all, he says, where did all this material go? Because it, there's, not, there's not a hole at the bottom, you know? It's a big pit, you know, 90 feet deep, 300 feet wide, and there's that quantity of material missing. But it's sealed at the bottom, so it, uh, that's why I thought of like the, the pit from Return of the Jedi. It's like something just, you know, opened up and sucked a, a massive amount of land down and then closed again, you know, or it filled a hole, maybe whatever. But the thing about it is, I was just finding, I just found it interesting that there were people standing at the bottom, of it, right at the wow. Uh, well, this opening up phenomenon doesn't only occur on planet Earth. Actually, there's a strong correlation between uh, the solar activity and the diameter of the sun. When the sun is less active, i.e. its internal field between the core and the surface is reduced, then the binding force is lessened. You see the dilatation of the sun. The surface is less attracted to the core. Mm -hmm. It seems to be... uh, one of the factors, one of the two main factors that explain the current opening up, mm-hmm. this reduction, this time in the Earth, of the internal electric field between the core and the surface. Mm-hmm. That doesn't hold, us, that doesn't attract the surface to the core. Mm-hmm. And you know, the kind of stuff that we're saying here, just to mention to our listeners, uh, 
the kind of stuff that we're saying here, trying to find an explanation for these things that are going on, noticing the things that are going on, trying to find an explanation for them, is the one thing that all of the scientists on our planet and scientifically minded people are not doing. They're not factoring in. So every single time, they're just going to take each incident in isolation and come up with this, you know, trite, you know, you know, kind of, you know, outrageous, really, explanation for it to explain it away, you know, because there was a website of someone who actually was talking about that sinkhole in Kansas, and I, I had an exchange with, with her, I think it was, and she was just really resistant to the idea that anything was happening on the planet. It was like, these things happen all the time, and it's nothing to be concerned about. It's just very interesting, you know. So you're going to have the world scientists, you know, looking at these things and saying, mm, isn't that interesting? And, you know, right up to the point where they get swallowed by a... a <laughs> A sinkhole, or, or all of them get swallowed by sinkholes, or, or you know, you can just imagine a situation where they just continue to study and continue to try and explain it away as nothing normal, rather than factoring all of the details in together and say something is going on here, and even using hard hard scientific fact about you know major upheavals on the planet in history, even if it was you know a long time ago, well, not that long ago. Like I mean, they would even accept that you know maybe ten to twelve thousand years ago. There were major upheavals on the planet. That's pretty much, uh, uh, you know, the, the Younger Dryas uh, period. There were major upheavals then, but supposedly 12,000 years ago was too long ago for it to ever to be happening. Now, I mean, what do these people think it would be like if something like what they accept had happened in the past started happening again? Have, have any of them thought of that and maybe come up with a theory as to what the signs would be? And do they correlate to what the signs are today? I mean, it's, all, it's maddening that none of them will, you know, will actually go there. And, they, and, it's, and it's, the only explanation we have is that, or that, that I can think of is that they're so invested in this kind of linear, you know, God is in, his heaven, God is in heaven and all is right with the world and nothing ever changes this kind of uh, uniformitarian. uniformitarian approach to things, even though they admit that in the past... There have been events changes. on the earth have been far from uniformitarian, or, or uh, certainly if you take it over a broad sweep of the earth's history, it's not uniformitarian, and it's not, it's not regular either. You know. Oh, well, it's, I mean, look at it this way: twelve thousand years ago, they admit that it happened. They can't go back twenty-four thousand years ago and know for sure that it didn't happen every twelve thousand years. If they, I mean, if they could see twenty-four thousand years ago and know that something similar happened, then they might think, well, twelve thousand years, 12, the last one was twelve thousand years. years. That puts it about now. No, but you're not allowed to do that. Because anything that upsets the worldview, this uniformitarian worldview, is thrown out. It's automatically and a priori excluded from any any any, any thought process. Yeah, there is a, some kind of magnification bias or anthropocentric bias where we think that our period, our location is is so central and so stable. Although when you check the records. Uh, geomagnetic field, cometary activity, uh, ice ages. You see that periods of stability are not the rule, they are exceptions. The planet is fundamentally cyclical, fundamentally. And actually, the 12,000 years argument is pretty strong the way the, the mainstream media and mainstream science twist it, saying yeah, it was 12,000 years ago, it was a long time ago, it went up and again, it was a long time ago, blah, blah, blah. And that's why, actually, they raised more recent proofs of major upheaval. Because if you check 
more carefully the records. The, 12, uh, the event 12,000 years ago was one event, but it was followed by many events, and you don't have to go back much in time to find some major disruptions. I mean, uh, just to, to mention one, and not, not to repeat ourselves, we won't mention the Roman Empire fall, the fall of the Roman Empire, but we can mention the, the Black Plague. Mm -hmm. 1347, after years of intense cometary activity, you have the Ice Age that settles, that will last 300 years, mm -hmm. and you have the Black Plague that will last also 300 years, yeah, and they have made up until 7020, yeah. and that will kill hundreds of millions of people. It was, what, mm. six centuries ago? Seven mm -hmm. centuries ago? Yeah. yeah. They're expanding on that, too. I mean, it's traditionally been, been said to have been a European phenomenon only, but millions died globally. It was a global event. And hundreds of millions, and, and there were not seven, uh, eight billion uh, human beings on the planet. Mm -hmm. It yeah. was maybe 30%, 40% of the world population yeah. that got erased, obliterated. That's something. I mean, just 600, actually, it's... I think we mentioned it today, it's 666 years this year since the Black Death began mm -hmm. and wiped out almost two-thirds of the global population. That That's was a new... massive culling just 600 years ago. That's the numerologists out there, 666 years. <laughs> um, but one other thing that, that occurred to me was that I've been looking at some old maps, you know, original maps from 1400s, 1500s and stuff, and most of them are done by European um Topographers, Geographer. topographers, and they, <clears throat> all of them, almost all of them show the line, you know, they roughly have the European, the Western European continent and a bit of Africa, more or less correct. But all along the, the Western coast of, from, from Ireland and down the Western coast of France and down the Western coast of Spain and to the Canaries, they show this kind of string of islands of different sizes. You know, a lot of them, uh, the ones that I've looked at from different sources, all, all show this. You know, and these are not there anymore except for the Canary Islands. But, and it's kind of an example of, of what I said. I said, you know, I mean, they obviously were able to get most of, you know, you know, the, the British Isles and, and, and Western Europe and stuff, more or less the right shape and everything. And so they obviously, they were maritime peoples and they knew that they could map, somehow they mapped out roughly the, the shape of the countries. And they included these islands. But that's just, you know, dismissed as, you know, well, I don't know, they made a mistake there or something. You know, they got the rest okay, but they made a mistake there, you know. But well, it's it's poetic license. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of flair thrown in. Yeah, but it coincides with this time frame that you're talking about of, of you know, of, of a period of major uh, cometary mm. activity and then uh, uh, the Black Plague, uh, the Black Death, and um, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of hidden in plain sight right there, but it's ignored repeatedly because it does not conform with the, the, the religion of science. And they're just as bad as religious, you know, fundies who will, when faced with, with, with events that are, that yeah. don't make sense to them, will turn around and just pray to God. They just, well, they just turn around to and God. pray to the, to the book of official science and hope that it, doing that it'll make, well, make these anomalies go away. It goes any hand historically because <clears throat> after the after the the major disruption that brought the fall of the Roman Empire at the end of the sixth century A.D., you had the three centuries that were basically blank. 
and then Western civilization reemerged. And with this reemergence, you had a, a rewriting of history that erased all records of major cataclysm, presenting a uniformitarian view of the world. And you had also the, the rise of the Christian Catholic Church that was proning basically ignorance, mm-hmm. obscur- obscurantism. So that was preventing people from accessing this knowledge. Or even accessing education or the, the resources yeah, to educate knowledge. themselves. Yeah. yeah to an- Thank you. It appears. Anyway, I think, I think we're back. Uh, sorry about that, folks. We uh, Skype just uh, ever so kindly booted us off there for some reason. Once again. Um, yes, where were we? Yeah, after the re-emergence of the Western civilization around the year 2000, first you have this uh, domination of the Catholic Church that was uh, promoting obscurantism, ignorance, basically, which prevented human beings uh, from reaching knowledge, understanding their history, and uh, understanding how maybe to prevent the occurrence of those disruptions. And then... When finally this obscurantism started to decrease, you had the concomitant rise of scientism. That was basically a new religion that we stuff in people's brain, not ignorance this time, but wrong data, mm-hmm. which is not better to understand the cyclical nature of our world, our influence on cosmic events, and uh, maybe ways to avoid what? The history to repeat. Mm-hmm. What, what time period are we talking about here? Here we're talking basically, uh, we started in the 6th century AD with okay. the fall of the Roman Empire, the, the obliteration of Europe, basically, yeah. then a recovery around uh, 950, yeah. and the rise of uh, Christ- Catholic, Catholic Church. The modern Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah from uh, 1000 to uh, 1700. Mm-hmm. And from 1700, you have the relay in the minds, the dominant paradigm, shit from Catholic obscurantism to scientism. Yeah. This neo-Darwinian, linear, uniformitarian, eventless, mechanistic mm-hmm. vision of the universe that erase, that ignores the most important components of our environment mm-hmm. and that all yeah. totally decorrelates human affairs from cosmic events. And it's not just that people are filled with wrong data from which to work from. It it corrupts them in a way that they're no longer able to simply observe what they see with their own eyes. You know, the, the beliefs are clouding what's there in front of them. So it's even worse than getting a wrong educate them, being misinformed. It's almost like you're not seeing what is there. You know what I mean? Um, before, uh, we're, we're kind of... Uh running down time here. I just wanted to maybe change track a little bit towards something a bit more, just to mix it up a little bit, change something more uh, maybe geopolitical in nature. What have you got for me, Neil? Uh, What's been going on in the geopolitical stage over the past uh, week? Well, the big one, obviously, is, uh, is Egypt. Yeah. What's going on in Egypt? The, and up to, I mean, there's different was, figures, 200 people killed. I think or, more, yeah. Well, 200 according to the the, the, the military uh, dictatorship, what they call Malatisi. But uh, according to the Muslim Brotherhood, 4,000, 4,500 is a figure that they have thrown out. So, I mean, that seems a bit exaggerated as well, maybe it's, somewhere in the middle. It's, but um, it's exploded. And it's, it's um, 
it's hard, bad, but it's kind of predictable. It's it's hard to reconcile it from from a couple of years ago when Mubarak was thrown out and the whole popular revolution in Tahrir Square and um, mm. getting rid of Mubarak, who was a a crony uh, of of the Americans and of the Israelis and was not uh, really, um, you know, serving the people in any way whatsoever and was. He was a he was a long term dictator and, a, and a, a member of the wealthy elite, corrupt elite. So, uh, but they got rid of him and it took a couple of years. But it seems that they're kind of back in um, <clears throat> back in the same position with a different a different figurehead now. This General Al Al Sisi, um, who I actually he, I mean, like so many other people in in various countries, especially in the Middle East, he is a veteran or a, he attended. School of America. Well, the U.S. War College, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, basically it's a school, effectively like a university, a war university type thing, where various diplomats and officers, not from the U.S. but also from um, different countries, go to uh, go to be instructed on on war, essentially on how to control people, how to how to lead lead people or, or govern people. Essentially, and um, he's basically just on my understanding of the situation. It's um, the U.S. obviously is still providing aid to to Egypt, despite this essentially being a military dictatorship or a military coup, and officially under some obscure U.S. law, they're not allowed to provide aid to any country that has undergone a, a, a coup. But they're continuing to do so now because they're calling it it's a coup that that's not a coup. It's a military coup that's not really a military coup. So they're yeah. you know they're it, wait- it's a farcical situation where they're carefully framing their rhetoric not to use the word coup because that kicks in a clause which then disbars the U.S. government exactly by its own regulations from sending military aid. Military and they want aid, to continue which amounts to, do that. to 1.5 billion per year. Yeah. And they want to continue to do that, but also the Saudis are backing him. In a big way, but there's very little room uh, to to choose between the Saudis and the Americans, and also Israel. Obviously, is a, a factor here, right on, pretty much on uh, Israel's border. Israel has always been very much interested in who is ruling or governing in Egypt, being such a big country uh, in the Middle East, and um, and obviously a threat because obviously Israel has been has done that with every single other country. Around it in the Middle East, because they're all Arab, uh, mostly Muslim, and Israel or Israel is obviously, you know, under under a threat there from from all of these other Muslim countries that planted itself in the middle of by stealing Palestinian land and continuing to abuse an Arab Muslim population. Obviously, it's got a a vested interest, a serious vested interest in making sure that the natural reaction of countries and people around it, which would be to be rather, uh, let's say, uh, not very happy with Israel, they've had a vested interest in making sure that they keep that under wraps by installing or making sure that certain people in power are in power in those various Muslim countries to um, to, to not allow the natural expression of the local population, which would be anti-Israel. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and for Israel, there are also, in addition to the geopolitical factors, there are the historical factors, the 1967 uh, war, uh-huh. Yom Kippur, and there are also a, a eschatological factor. Mm-hmm. Like in uh, the Deuteronomy the, 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 the says that um, Israel 
will eventually bring into submission the seven nations. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Yeah, yeah, sorry for the pronunciation. The Deuteronomy. And uh, Egypt being one of the seven nations. Mm-hmm. So there are geopolitics, history, biblical. eschatology, uh, biblical eschatology that uh, combine mm-hmm. to serve uh, Israel. Well, it was kind of interesting because Israel was, was, was happy with Mubarak. Mm-hmm. And Mubarak was essentially secular. Uh, this new general, al-Sisi, is more of an Islamist. But Israel is, appears to be okay with him also because it's not the fact that he would be an Islamist, but that as long as he is uh, an authoritarian Islamist who would be using Islam to keep the people down and therefore and, and maintain proper, friendly, as according to Israel, relations with Israel, that they don't care what flavor or color he comes in as long as he is, you know, controllable. And, uh, you know, it's the same as the U.S. and the Brits with over the past you know, 50 or 100 years, they've found common cause throughout the Middle East and uh, and near Asia with, they found far more common cause with fundy, right-wing, Islamist-type characters than they have with any kind of social, progressive, uh, liberal, whatever you want to call it, open-minded and essentially people who are interested in the truth and, and justice, you know, because... So, um, but I found it interesting that, that the School of the Americas, a little tidbit on the School, not the School of the Americas, the U.S. War College, that was actually founded on... Um, or it was established from the principles learned in the Spanish-American War. And the Spanish-American War was in 1898, and one of the defining aspects of the Spanish-American War was the sinking of the USS Maine. And that was one of the early... False flag events. False flag events. So you have this U.S. War, war College that is set up to kind of train uh, officers and diplomats from the U.S. and from other countries uh, in the art of being leaders, yeah, and it's founded on the principles of the U.S. of the Spanish-American War, which was kind of largely based or launched on the basis of a false flag attack. So I wonder what kind of programs they have going there for for these diplomats that attend the U.S. Uh, War College. And it's interesting to see as well. Flags 101. Yeah, it's interesting as well to see how those uh, leaders, oligarch leaders, bend realities, bend work, words to fit. To, f- to make it fit to their perception and objective and interest. Um, the way, for example, because, the, yeah, the, the line of force is, does it serve my interest or not? That's only what matters in the mind of those people, obviously. And uh, if the coup serves their interest, then we talk about a popular revolution mm-hmm. where to help the people get their freedom. If the coup doesn't serve their interest, they will abolish terrorist coup d'etat mm-hmm. or evil military dictator takes over insurgency mm-hmm. yeah, dictatorship etc and um, that's uh, that's quite uh, fascinating this uh, use of language I just call it hypocritical scumbags yeah I mean to hear the US from a distance saying you know pleading for peace from both sides of the mm. divide. While the Pentagon is... While they're sending them so many weapons. I mean, the Pentagon's just, arming them, yeah. Well, what I'm going to sort out in my mind is <clears throat> Mubarak is kicked out by a popular uprising mm. with help, possibly, from other interested parties. Um, Egypt has is welcomed into the global club of free democracies, has mm. its first democratic elections in 19-plus years. 
or longer, 40 years, I think. Mm-hmm. But one year later, Morsi is the democratically elected prime minister or president. And then what? He was there was a, another popular uprising mm. to remove him because he was not acting supposedly they were, in, for the will of the people. Yeah, he, he was trying to impose. They were, he was being too Islamist, according to most people. And but it's hard to know whether that was a, there was a genuine. Uh, he's been too authoritarian, etc. But that episode for me smacked of uh, manipulation, you know, and that that was incited as a way to offer the oppor- give the opportunity to the, the military and Al Sisi to actually come, yeah. in, come in and say, okay, we're going to take control here because you know there's unrest, you know. Yeah. I mean, just manufacture some unrest and say, for the good of the country, I am going to step in as an interim government. But in the process, then all of the people who, who see that as for the manipulation that it was. Um, get out in the streets, and the, the Morsi supporters yeah. get in the streets, and then they just gun them down. I mean, it's uh, part of part of what they will learn in war colleges is uh, the art of counterinsurgency, mm-hmm. and that a classic tactic over and over we've seen is sending out snipers, mm-hmm. shooting people around mm-hmm. them in the head, preferably, mm-hmm. and we have video footage of that happening mm-hmm. throughout the last few years in Egypt, mm-hmm. two years. Um, the Egyptian army is able to say, we have no idea who this gunmen are. Mm-hmm. And the spokesman saying that may actually be genuine. He may have plausible deniability mm-hmm. there. There's mm-hmm. a, third, a third party acting. Yeah, uh, there's always a third, third party. Force. I think like any country, yeah. um, Egypt has what you might call a deep state. Mm-hmm. The real wealthy ol- oligarch, mm-hmm. or which even Mubarak before Morsi was a front man. Mm-hmm. They're happy for him to be the public face, mm. so long as he plays ball. I think it was set up by the Brits, basically. It's the same kind of thing. It's a, you know, with the Brits having been involved in Egypt for so long, uh, I think that that deep state that you're talking about, that that kind of a deeper and higher level elite that are running things from behind the scenes, are all, yeah, basically old colonial boys. Even if even if they're Egyptian, you know, they ascribe to the yeah. to the old tenets of the of the British Empire that arrogant racist uh, view, you know, of essentially them. At that point, it's not, you know, Muslims versus Christians or whites or blacks or browns or yellows or whatever. It's we the elite against the people of any shade, of any color. Exactly. And that's that's who's behind the scenes there in Egypt. And it's unfortunate, you know. And that's why you see so much speech and so much mediatization of fake dualities, fake divisions in our society. Black versus white, men versus women unemployed versus employed, private employees versus public servants, and uh, and Muslim versus Christians, and etc., uh, etc., et while the only real division, duality in our society is mm. the elite, this uh, 0.1% versus elite. the rest of the people. All the rest is only uh, illusion mm-hmm. and diversion. Yep, an attempted, uh, attempted yeah. conquer. The conquer. The snakes in our myths. There's um speaking of snakes. Mm-hmm. Um most of these stories I found last week, but there have been so many. Another another one this week. Just bizarre headlines. Snake slips out of French postal packet. Mm-hmm. Australian police find five point seven meter python in Queensland's store or shop. It came from France. <laughs> Possibly. A python holds up traffic on an expressway near Birmingham, the UK. A Bordeaux man finds a two-meter snake in his car. An escaped python 
we probably heard this, kills two kids in New Brunswick, New Brunswick, New, uh, in the U.S. A 14-foot Burmese python is found in a Florida shed. It was eating local cats. I see. A large snake was discovered in Leicester in a pond in the U.K. And then the one from this week, 40 pythons seized from an Ontario motel room. I mean, they're all. So like, if we look at our re- coming through there, we look at our reality from a symbolic, symbolic yeah. point of view. I mean, what is that saying? It's I don't know. It's saying that the uh, snakes among us, you know. Yeah, they were just and or, and or, I think uh, the snake would have been a prevalent symbol for comets as well. Well, in the past, it yeah. was yeah. And even if you think about a more mundane explanation, over the past years there's been this uh, hype around reptilian, reptiles in general and snakes in particular, more and more people having those vivariums and having snakes and the snakes grows and grows. It's been a it's it's a pet now mm. for more and more people. But problem is that uh, unlike uh, dogs or cats, it grows a lot. Uh, it can reach five, six, seven meters, those constructors uh, snakes in particular. Uh, and maybe the occurrence of the snakes all around is a consequence of that. But in first instance the increase in, in, in the interest of people for reptilians can be symbolic as well. Yeah, Why so that all of a sudden people uh, want snake to replace their cat or to replace hmm. their god? But these stories, but these stories about all these snakes are, okay. are pretty pretty interesting because they're you know they're out there and the, uh, they're being advertised or they're being seen by the or potentially seen by large numbers of people. So they're a good candidate for looking at it from a symbolic point of view and. Of course, anybody who doesn't look at it from a spot point of view will just say, well, they're just coincidences, just for instance, and it's no, no big deal. But, I mean, the point is that there is a, there is a symbolic element to life and, and our reality, and then people should take, take notice of it because it can help you and to, to, to essentially read the signs and see a deeper reality that is behind uh, much of what goes on overtly on the planet, you know, because if you just look at, at the, the, the overt, straight-up... Uh, provable, only the provable stuff on this planet, you know, hard scientific stuff, you're going to go the way of uh, of mainstream science, which is you're going to miss miss the, 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 the salient point, the most important point. How does the saying go? First the universe sends you SMS, mm-hmm. then gives you a call, and puts a billboard in front of you, and if you still, if you still don't get the message, it makes the billboard fall on you. Fall on your head, yeah, and that's the step you want to avoid. You want to take notice of it before it falls on your head. Anyway, folks, we've run out of time, um, so we're going to end it there. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our callers. Caller. Caller. Laurie. And thanks to all of our chat room chatters. They've been very very informative sure. and very very active. Uh, always appreciated. We will be back. We'll be back next week with an action-packed uh, show on some topic as yet to be decided and uh, revealed. <laughs> revealed. <laughs> as yet to be revealed. Uh, but it, uh, it'll we'll try and make it as interesting and informative as possible. So until then, cheerio, keep the faith. Have a thanks. We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state. Of-